please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in your presence and we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would open the word of God to all the people of God. Speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So how can we understand the second coming of Jesus as good news? How can we understand the second coming of Jesus as good news? Our sermon this morning begins with an Akana priest in Texas named Jonathan Pagan, who walks into a New Age vegan grocery store in Austin, Texas, near where he lives. And as he's going through the store, he notices something strange, an advent calendar and for sale. He writes, as far as I can tell, the store owners have not suddenly become interested in readying their customers for the incarnation. The awkward presence of the advent calendar in a store devoted mostly to the healing power of mushrooms and crystals is now part of a larger secularization of the season of advent, which now purring along the same commercial hum as secular Christmas. The plethora of advent themes from Legos to bath bombs to teas all the way up the price scale to Tiffany jewelry indicates that the season has been overtaken in the long consumerist march from Black Friday to Christmas Day. Well, he's not happy because even advent now has been sucked into the vortex of this consumerist slop that our culture offers us, and vortex is the right image. It's just an almost irrepressible force that seeks to gather us all in. But he wants us to reflect on the fact that in this crazy place of a new age vegan grocery store in Austin, Texas, there's still an advent calendar. What is advent really about, brothers and sisters? That's his question. And he goes deeper than that and asks, why is it that In the ancient church, Advent was always a time when the second coming of Jesus was celebrated. Now, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, right? You heard it in the collect. Everybody listen to the collect, right? We're actually praying for the second coming of Jesus. And I remind you all the time, right? Christ has died. Christ has risen. Go ahead, finish it. See, now you say that every week in the liturgy, and then people get mad at me when I say he's coming again. This is the season when we actually focus our minds on preparation, expectation, and anticipation. That's P-E-A, the vegetable P, and we prepare for two comings, his coming in great humility in the manger, and his coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And what Jonathan Pagan is asking us to, to ask ourselves is, The the tradition that we inherit, the tradition that's given us the season of Advent, not only focuses on the second coming of Jesus, but it focuses on the second coming of Jesus as good news. And the question is this, do we? It's not an Advent calendar with magic mushrooms. It's way, way more. What is it? Well, I appreciate you asking the question. And I'm going to turn to Isaiah 35, if you'd be so kind. I'm hoping I can get it up on the slide. And I'm actually going to ask you to go to the second slide. Because the second slide, yeah, right there. That's good. So look at your text and think about this passage in Isaiah 35 and what it has to teach us about the second coming of Jesus and why our ancestors on whose shoulders we stand this morning were correct to understand that not only is something we're supposed to be ready for, but it's something we're supposed to be excited about and something to be seen as good news. You all with me? That's the question. 
All right, first of all, it's good news because God comes to bring justice and judgment. Look at your text and look at verse 4, which is up there toward the top of the screen. You see where I am? Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with a recompense of God. Now that word vengeance means to set right things that are wrong. It's used in the Samson saga in the book of Judges. You remember Samson. He's a long story for another time. But if you remember at the end, the Philistines are so fed up with him and all his damage that he's doing that they actually imprison him and take out his eyes. And he prays a prayer using this word. And he says, oh, Lord, enable me to seek justice, vengeance, justice, because it's not just that you take somebody who's a victim and take out their eyes. Enable me to get back and to make this right. There's been a wrong that has to be righted, and this is the word that's used to right a wrong. And the second word, that word recompense, means an act of good or ill that is justly deserved. The whole Old Testament idea of justice is treating people equitably, treating each person properly based on the merits of the case, regardless of race or social status. It's as simple as that that story about Solomon that you all know too well with the two women and the baby and there's a time of great famine and one of the children is eaten and they have a dispute as to whose daughter it really is and Solomon asks them to kill the baby and one of the women shrieks out and he says, give it to her, she's the mother. How does he know how to do that? That's the right thing to do in the right situation because it's seen rightfully. That's the Old Testament vision of justice. It's the right action in the right circumstances with the right motive to make things right. Otherwise, if he'd have given it to the other mother, it would have been wrong. So the whole idea of this image in Isaiah is, when I'm a Christian, I'm thinking of God coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Part of what I have to think about is the fact that it's good news because there are wrongs in history that have to be righted. And I should be glad about this. But the first question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, are we, brothers and sisters? Now, I think you have to admit with me as we try to tackle this, that we're swimming upstream. Most of us don't want to think about justice and judgment, and most of us don't often think of it, if we think of it at all, as good news. So I want to take you to an interesting place. I want to take you to the theology of a man who grew up in Croatia. And part of the reason I want to do this is because somebody like him understands this image much better than you and I do, because he grew up in a country in the midst of the Yugoslavian war where the entire cycle was very simple. You get back at me, I get back at you. You get back at me, I get back at you. And on and on the cycle goes, and there's blood flowing in the streets over and over and over again. It's a society that knows no peace and is full of violence. And he's writing as a Croatian theologian about exactly this image. And he says something that's absolutely shocking, which is why I want to share it with you, because it forces us to confront this crucial insight of Isaiah, I think, with the force that it needs to be confronted with. Listen to what he says. Is not God all-loving, long-suffering, and all-powerful love? Well, I have a counter-question, which would go something like this. Is it not a bit too arrogant to presume that our contemporary sensibilities about what is compatible with God's love are much healthier than those of the people of God throughout history, in the history of Judaism and Christianity? 
recall my arguments about the circumstances in which my country found itself, a world of violence. So it would not be worthy of God to wield the sword, but from the perspective that I grew up with, if God were not angry at justice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, listen, God would not be worthy of our worship. Whoa, did you get that? He's saying something incredibly insightful and incredibly profound. He's saying, I lived this over and over again for generations. And the only way to stop the cycle of vengeance and violence and justice on our own terms, which never is ultimate justice, I hope you will agree. Thank God there's a final law court that's going to fix everything and do it right. Even the Supreme Court or whichever court you want to use, there's still an arbiter for them. Even they will be judged by our higher court. We're talking about the highest court, but what he's saying is it's the people who don't believe in a divine judge and in divine justice who are the ones who are most likely to perpetuate the cycle of injustice in this world because they're trying to take justice on their own terms. It's actually the people who believe that justice belongs to God who are the ones who are uniquely poised to stop the cycle. My thesis, he goes on, now he's really going for it, that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine justice and vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially in the West. To the person who's inclined to dismiss it, i.e. us, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned, then leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Oh, by the way, the topic of your lecture is a Christian attitude toward violence. And your thesis is, we should not retaliate since God is a perfectly non-coercing, loving being. Soon you would discover, listen to this, that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked with the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one would do well to reflect about the many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Oh, that'll preach. <laughs> we need to hear with the full force that it's intended Abraham's amazing question when he's wrestling with God in the midst of God's prospective judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, if you remember the scene in Genesis 18. Are you going to wipe out the righteous with the unrighteous? Are you going to do it, Lord? And he says this in the midst of all this backing and forthing with Jehovah God. Shall not the judge of all the, the earth do what is right? He wants a God of justice. And you and I do too, if we think about it. Oh, we want forgiveness when we mess up. But when somebody messes up against us, we want justice. We want a universe with red lights and green lights. We don't actually want a universe where if you have a baby buggy going down the street and somebody's just pushing it on the sidewalk, it's fine. But if the same person chooses to push the buggy into the middle of the street and a car runs over the buggy and the baby and the baby's killed, it's no big deal because everybody makes their own choices. You say potato, I say potato. So no big deal. No, no, no. You can't do that, actually. That's not right. That's not just. That is something that has to be fixed. 
And in a world with Mussolini and Hitler and Khmer Rouge and all the other horrible things that are going on and have been going on, we have to understand that we need a God who's going to make things right. We need to hear the cry of our brothers and sisters from Croatia. We need a God of justice. We want a God of justice. And it's good news that God's going to make everything right because he's the most fair judge the world will ever know. You all with me so far? So it's good news because it brings justice. And there's too much injustice. And part of being a Christian is to care about justice and to want justice and to not want injustice. You all with me so far? Okay, point number one, he comes with justice and vengeance, and it's good news. Point number two, he comes with salvation. It's right there. Behold your God. He will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Now, two quick points about that verse. First of all, please can you hear, I hope you notice in this passage, that word you is not American, i.e. individualistic, right? So the problem with Americans is, oh good, it's Jesus and me in my back pocket, right? So he will come and save you. No, no, no. Did you happen to catch the way that this magnificent passage ends? Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return with singing unto Zion, and everlasting joy shall be upon, did you catch it? Their head. We're talking about an entire redeemed society. God calls Abraham because God made the whole world and God wants to save the whole world. Through you, all the families of the world shall be blessed. So this salvation that God's going to bring is to you collectively. Newsflash, we're all going to be together in glory. You're stuck with me. And, and vice versa. God's salvation is a corporate activity. But it is most especially a saving activity. The word means to save, to deliver, to liberate, to just pick one image from the New Testament. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It's a kingdom transfer. It's a deliverance. God is about the salvation business. The four comfortable words include Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Our God is a God who comes ultimately to save, to save from evil, to save from death, to save from darkness, to save from judgment. It's good news. It's a rescue operation. Are you with me? You have to put this point together with the first one if you're going to get it right. We're saved from the very judgment that God will bring on us that we deserve if we're left to ourselves. And we need to think about what that means. I've shared this story with a few of you before, but I want to share it again because it's so clear and so powerful, and I find it so helpful. So we're back in the 19th century in America, and we're at the point where the trains are now um, well run across the country, and they're the main means of transport. And one of the things that happens with those steam-driven locomotives is they send off sparks, and once a year in the Midwest, there comes a period of time, it's a 10 to 15 day period, when the wheat fields are ripe enough to burn, but not ripe enough to cut. And it's the most terrible time of year for all the farmers in the 19th century. And this is the story of one such farmer in one particular field on one particular day. And he's out in his field, and he sees smoke billowing in the distance, and he, he feels the wind, and it's going the wrong way from the tracks toward him and he doesn't have very much time. He's got a barn, he's got lots of fields, he's got lots of animals. So he takes a torch and he runs to the edge of his field, he lights a fire, he lights a fire to his own wheat fields, and he burns away 100 yards, 200 yards, and he makes a giant circle around his house, around his farm, around his animals, and he watches as the fire comes all the way up, and he loses about 80 to 90% of his assets for that particular year. 
And as it's all burned up and he's grieving, he then goes back out from his house, which is fine, over by his barn, which is fine, and he's just walking. And he's, it's, it's dark, it's dank, it's smelly, it's awful, and all he feels is grief and loss, and he's angry. And as he's walking along, he just sees this thing on the ground, and he, and he kicks it, and as he kicks it, he realizes, to his astonishment, it's a mother hen. It's black as all get out. So he kind of looks at it again, and then he gets even madder, and he kicks it even harder. And as he kicks it even harder, out from under the mother hen run a dozen little chicks. Donald Gray Barnhouse says this, the mother's body had been over them. She was burned, but they went out free. In the day of Christ dying, there was the dam of God's patience. There was the flood of God's wrath. There was the day that Jesus was put on the cross. God said that Christ was guilty of all the law, having become a curse through being crucified. But on the third day, God raised him from the dead. And I ran out free, and you ran out free. He was between us and the wrath of God. That's atonement. Why is the judgment of God good news? It's because we want judgment, but there's another reason it's good news, and that is, guess what the cross means? It means the judge has come already and judged himself in our place. I don't have to fear God's judgment because I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Christ took the judgment that I deserved, so I get the salvation that is pure gift and pure grace that I don't deserve, and he got the judgment and the justice and the wrath and the burning that I deserved. It's a completely free exchange, and it makes no sense except for the love of God. That's a very, very good piece of news. You all with me? <clears throat> Martin Lloyd-Jones is somebody that I'm very fond of quoting from time to time, and he has a wonderful illustration on this theme of the mother hen and the fact that Jesus took our judgment. And it's a very simple illustration, but I think it packs a good punch. So I want to make sure to share it as well. It's, it's simple, so we'll put it in 21st century terms. So you have a friend, you're going away on a trip, and your friend um, is house-sitting for you, and you get a text from your friend, and your friend said, oh, by the way, uh, yesterday a bill came for you, and I decided to pay it. That's what the text says. And Lloyd-Jones says this. Now, this is a hypothetical, so stay with me. He says... Uh, Okay, how do you respond to the text? Now you gotta think, because he's, he's after you on this. It seems simple, but he says, actually, if you think about it, the answer to that is, in terms of how you respond, the answer is, it depends. <laughs> what does it depend on? And Lloyd-Jones says this, it depends on the size of the bill, right? If it's a 20 cent postage due bill, right, you might send a text back and say, thanks. Oh yes, but wait a minute, what if it was 10 years of back taxes? What if it was like what my father's father dealt with in graduate school when he was in New England and his father in Mississippi was discovered to have embezzled in the 1920s hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars and he had to come out of graduate school, go back to Mississippi and raise all the money that his father had embezzled to clear the family name? What if it's something like that? Oh, Lloyd-Jones says, I might not know whether to shake his hand or to fall down on the ground and kiss his feet, but if it's the second, I would fall down on the ground and kiss his feet. What did Jesus actually experience on the cross? Unless you believe in hell, you will never know how much he loved you. You will never know how much he values you. Your heart will never know unless you really believe that Jesus took hell and judgment in your place. That's what it means, and that's what was paid. It's a good illustration, I think. 
It depends on the size of the bill. And part of Isaiah's getting us to reflect is Jesus has paid the bill, and it's a really, really big bill. As I never tire of asking people, just how big a problem do you think God had to solve if to solve it he had to send his son to die on a cross in our place to fix it? Last time I checked, that's a big, big problem. We tend to underestimate the problem of sin. God will have none of it. So he comes to judge, number one. He comes to save a corporate people, number two, to save us from justice and judgment and darkness and hell and sin and all those things. And I'm still not done. I thank Aaron very much for the hymn choice this morning, especially the first one. There's a third theme, and I adore this passage in Isaiah. And this third theme is is very, very precious to me because we have a youngest daughter who's a veterinarian, so we live in a family where animals are greatly respected and valued and where creation is something that's ever so much more important because of her and her gifts. You couldn't even kill a spider or a mosquito in my house growing up without her screaming at you to stop. Everything was precious. Everything was a miracle of God. Don't you ever forget it. And did you happen to catch the theme that runs all the way through this? It's not just judgment and justice. It's not just salvation. It's a third thing, and it's glorious, and it's this. God comes to renew and to make a new heaven and a new earth. And the language of the passage, did you catch it, is stretched to its very limit to try to convey what is actually going on. Look at the beginning of the passage, verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice. What in the world is going on? What do you mean the desert shall rejoice? In Isaiah 55, my favorite image in the whole book, straining language, just like in this passage, he says this, he says, the trees of the field will clap their hands. Now you got to think about this for a second. What does that actually mean? What does it mean to say the trees of the field? What does it mean that it's a new heaven and a new earth? It means that it's a better, fuller, bigger, richer earth because earth and creation shares in the fall. And Romans 8 says, creation wakes with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And when God comes to redeem and renew the earth, somehow the new tree is more spectacular, deeper and fuller and richer than the old tree to such an extent that it's almost as if when you're looking at the tree, the tree is clapping its hands. In a famous sermon, John Wesley put it this way, the whole brute creation will undoubtedly be restored, not only to the vigor, strength, and swiftness what they had at their original creation, but to a far higher degree than they ever enjoyed before. They will be restored, not only to the measure of understanding which they had in paradise, but to to a degree of it so much higher than as the understanding of an elephant is beyond the understanding of a worm. He's straining language to its very limit. And you knew your C.S. Lewis image was coming, right? But it is worth pointing out, in the, in the case of both Lewis and Narnia, that they're onto something. Those talking animals, those ants, you remember the ants, the talking trees? Why do you think they're in there? Are they just fairy tales? Sure. But they're, they're giving voice to the patristic hope that somehow the entire cosmos will be transfigured in Christ and creation itself will be richer, fuller, and deeper. If you want a great image from Lewis's great divorce, when the people get off the bus, <clears throat> which is going from uh, what seems to be hell to heaven, the grass is so grassy that it hurts their feet. And don't ask me to fully explain what that means. It's just grassier grass. 
and we're just going to leave it at that. But it's going to be absolutely awesome. So what does it mean that a tree will be more than a tree, that an ocean will be more than an ocean, that the animals will be ultimately back to what they're really intended to be, and we don't even have the capacity to fully imagine how great that is? This is something to look forward to. No wonder our ancestors were so excited. It's not just justice and judgment. It's not just salvation for a whole people but it's salvation for a whole world. When the Son of Man returns, Luke 18, will he find faith on the earth? That's what it says, verse 8. He died to redeem the earth because he created the earth, and he's coming back to the earth to make a new heaven and a new earth. Thanks be to God. So there are my three themes for your reflection this morning. Justice and judgment, salvation, and new heaven and new earth. Now I go from preaching to meddling, then I'm done. So you thought you were off the hook. No such luck. I have two things to offer you by way of specific reflection. The first is this. If you really take the second coming of Jesus seriously, you've got to be willing to ask yourself how God would see your life as it really is if he came, say, tomorrow or next week. I was saying to my wife in the car, one of the stories I'm very fond of is about the origin of the Nobel Prize, because Alfred Nobel was a really incredible person, invented TNT, some of you may know. But there's a really intriguing story about Nobel, which I'm very fond of, which is that the Swedish newspaper in his time actually muffed up his uh, obituary when his brother died. And so all of a sudden he's sitting, this is, this is a true story, and, and he's reading a Swedish newspaper and it says, uh, Alfred Nobel died, um, he brought uh, TNT explosives into the world, a, a, a new thing by which uh, human beings have learned has enormous destructive power and gives them tremendous ability to destroy each other, and he made a lot of money. That's what the obituary said. And he, he, was, he, was, he was reading it. He wasn't dead. They made a mistake. <laughs> His brother died, and that's, but, the, but, but what was so intriguing about it was when he was reading, he thought, oh, no. This is the way that the whole country of Sweden sees me. I'm the guy that made this destructive stuff. Yuck! So what did he do? Oh, well, he founded the Nobel Prize. You know the Nobel Prize. You do, actually. <laughs> For scientists and peace, and now we even have economics. That's all him. But you, what I want you to know is why it happened. It happened because all of a sudden, in the middle of his life, he had to reflect on what it might look like if actually he had been dead, and he didn't like it. So he wrote the rest of the story so that when he actually died, his life remembered very differently. That's the first thing. What is God going to find if he comes this afternoon and really finds you for where you live and move and have your being? Is there anything that needs to be changed? I leave that to you negotiate with God. The other thing I'm after is a really big thing, and it's this. I want to give, offer this passage to you as a titanic challenge to the secularism of our time and of our hearts and our lives. Now, I really care about this theme, and you need to understand secularism for what it is. It's extremely powerful, one of the most powerful dynamics in our culture. And the problem, brothers and sisters, in this situation which we find ourselves is, we're in a room filled with secondhand smoke. You do know how that works, right? If somebody's in a room smoking, even if you don't know it, you are inhaling smoke. Whether you want to or not, that's the way secondhand smoke works. Well, you are in a culture which is poisonously full of the secondhand smoke of secularism. And secularism is this. It is the world as if there is no God. And what you need to realize 
as I finish up this morning is this. Think of the average movie and the first 30 minutes. Think of the average television show that you watch with almost no exceptions. And think of the way that life is actually portrayed. And ask yourself this. Does anybody in this thing pray? No. Does anybody worship? No. Does the Bible ever come up? No. Does anybody ever do something where it looks like God's actually involved in the world at all? No. God is the great null curriculum of nearly every item of our culture. It is as if he is not there. And what is this passage trying to communicate to you? Oh, it is the judgment of God. It is the salvation of God. It is the renewal of the earth by God. I can't help but quote Isaiah, which is what John preaches when he shows up in the midst of Advent. Oh, yes, you remember Advent. That's a season. A voice crying in the wilderness. And what does the voice say? Behold your God. So I want you to reflect on your life and where you live and move and have your being from that perspective and ask yourself, if I drop myself into your life on Thursday afternoon, would you actually be living as if God was there and God mattered? Because this God seems to matter a whole lot, and he seems to want us to live as if he mattered a whole lot. So I give you, brothers and sisters, the awesome vision of Isaiah. It is a God of judgment. It is a God of salvation. It is a God who changes the earth back to the way it's originally been and more so that the trees of the fields shall clap their hands. And it's really, really good news. In Jesus' name, amen.